Well, it's good to see all of you out here on the Lord's Day this evening. Um, for those of you who are new, we've been doing a series on hell. I don't know if that's what brought you out here or what will scare you away from here. Um, but it, it, as we've been going through it, we've uh, had a working definition, I think it's up behind me, uh, that hell is the place of is hell is a place of eternal conscious torment separated from the felt presence of God and his grace. That's the definition we've been using. And as we've been going through various scriptures, elements of this definition have come forth and have come to light. Um, but before we get into our text today, our, our text is going to be in Luke 16, if you would like to start turning there. We're, I want to talk to you about an experience I've had uh, really once in my life. There, there are certain certain needs we have as people that we're unaware of most of the time until something brings it to our consciousness. Uh, I like the outdoors, and my brother-in-law, David Hill, also enjoys the outdoors. And uh, I don't know if it's foolishness or adventurousness on our part. We've been on several camping trips together, both of us as minimally experienced outdoorsmen. And uh, one of the trips we had was out in the Ozarks, and it was a really beautiful uh, trip. It was kind of a loop around where you go up this mountain. And for uh, about the first four hours of this backpacking trip, we were going, and we were in a real nice shaded area that was going along by a stream. And it, it, was, it was really pleasant, and, and you, after a while, you began to take for granted that there was a stream right next to you. And, you know, sometimes it would wander off a little and then come back to the stream. Uh, but all of a sudden, we realized it had wandered off a little bit, and it wasn't coming back to the stream. And one of the things that we would realized, uh, in me in particular, is that while we were walking by the stream, we weren't thinking about the importance of filling up our water bottles. We had taken for granted the fact that there was a source of water next to us, and we were beginning an incline up a mountain towards what was now becoming the heat of the day. With the result that by the time we reached the top of that mountain, we hadn't run into any other streams or tributaries from which to get water. And I was completely parched. Uh, I've never really experienced thirst as I had until that moment. By by the time we got to the top, there was some civilization, but we couldn't find a nozzle even on on people's houses. And, And we were going around and just asking anybody if they had water. By the end of that time, I would have paid any amount of money for a cup of water. And and, and there was a a group of people there, and one of them said, we're about to do, uh, there were these guys in like Jeeps and these rugged all-terrain vehicles, and they were doing this race around the region. And one of them said, hey, I've, I've got some extra water. And he grabbed a gallon of water and handed it to us. I was just so relieved. Finally, I've, I've got water. I've got something to sustain myself. That's That was the first time I really ever thought hard 
about what going thirsty is like. The passage we're looking at today, as it's describing the torments of hell, is going to be talking about an extreme thirst. Like I said, I I was willing to pay a large amount of money, any amount of money, for a cup of water. Uh, But do you know what? If, If somebody took some water, just dipped their finger on it and said, here, that's what you get. I would have not paid very much for that. I would have been unwilling for that to be a relief to my thirst. It had not yet reached that degree of thirst. We're going to see a degree of torment and thirst, which is nearly inexplicable. Let us look together. We're in Luke chapter 16. Uh, The verses we're going to be reading today are Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let us pray together. Lord, we pray now as we come before you to read and study your word, that you would open our hearts to hear what your word would say to us. Lord, may we be open and receptive to your word and your spirit working within us. Lord, we pray that we might honor you more, that we might love you more, that we might see your glory more through your word as it is presented here to us today. In the beautiful and precious name of Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen.
Uh, before we kind of dive into some of the principles that are that are shown in this passage, uh, I just want to l- let you be aware of that there is uh, some dispute as to the nature of this story. Uh, th- there are some people who look at this and say, well, it's obviously a parable. Uh, however, when, when other people look at this, they say there are certain elements in this that are atypical of a parable. For example, in parables, you usually don't have proper names. Here we have a character named Lazarus. Uh, so I just want you to, to be aware of the dispute. It's probably outside of my range of abilities to determine whether or not it's a parable. But I think it is interesting that although most people look at this as a parable, that there are some details here that kind of make us think, well, maybe it's not. Maybe this is Christ telling us an actual story. But the purpose of the story is is to tell us a little bit about the nature of hell. And uh, there, there are five things that we want, I want to draw out of this passage uh, to, that we should be reflecting on in the nature of hell. Uh, first of all, hell is a place of punishment for rebellion against God, God's word, and God's work. Hell is a place of punishment for rebellion against God himself, against God's word, and against God's work. Um, And and as we think about that, we we have to think, what was the sin of the rich man? What rule or law did he break? And and as we initially look at this passage, one of the things it almost appears as though, is that it appears as, as though the rich man's sin was being rich. At first glance, doesn't it? It says, how does it describe him? There was a rich man. That's where we get, that's why we call him the rich man, because it says he was a rich man. (laughs) How did he treat himself? He was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. Later on, you move, you move down and, uh, what does it say? What does Abraham say? He said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Wait, does, it, does this mean that however good you have it here is going to be how bad you have it in the next life? And however bad you have it in this life is going to determine how good you have it in the next life? Well, not exactly. It, one of the, but one of the things I need to say before I launch into this explanation is that Jesus in the Gospels is really, really harsh on rich people. And, and as I give this explanation and as I give this description, I don't want to soften any of the blow that he has. I, I just want us to have some clarity as to what he is saying. That the primary sin isn't necessarily richness or wealth. And by the way, if, if you're sitting here and thinking, well, you know, this message, if it's about a rich man, doesn't really apply to me. I, I don't fit the parameters of uh, what's described here. If you, if you think you're excluded from this category, rich people, by the way, I'd encourage you, uh, this is kind of fun to do, go to globalrichlist.com. Go to globalrichlist.com and you can either enter in uh, your salary or if you're retired, you can enter in your net assets. And what it'll do is it'll give you an estimation of where you rank in the world 
out of the 7 billion people in the world, where you rank in terms of your wealth, where you rank in, in terms of your income. And if you come away from doing that and still think you're in the poor category, we need to have a conversation. Uh, we'll, I'll, I'll be willing to help you out. Um, so, so uh, first of all, I don't want us to dismiss the dangers that are very apparent in the scriptures and the warnings that are apparent in the scriptures towards rich people. And I don't want us to dismiss the idea that, well, I'm not really that rich because I can think of a lot of people who make a lot more money than I do. And in fact, most of us probably have it a lot nicer than the rich man in this passage, don't we? We got indoor plumbing. We got air conditioning. We got heaters. Not only in our houses, but some of us even in our vehicles. We're living in the lap of luxury. But, but was his primary sin just being rich? Not entirely. There, there was a passage that he was denying. There was a command of God that he was very clearly going against. It comes from a book that most of us don't spend a lot of time in, in our study of God's word. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 15, By the way, when you get the chance, read this whole chapter of Deuteronomy 15. Absolutely fascinating, the commands that are given in it. Uh, It's largely about the Sabbath year, and it was a year that would come every seventh year. And in it, uh, you would release anybody who owed you any money from their obligation, from their debt. You also weren't allowed to loan at interest to your fellow Israelites. So think about that. You're loaning money. You're not getting any interest on it. And every seventh year, you got to forgive them the debt. That's not a great way to make money. But in the midst of this, one of the things you see throughout the chapter 15 is that the vision for the people of Israel is that all of them will be a prosperous people if they are obeying the word of the Lord. And one of the ways that they are to all prosper is for them to take care of of those who are in poverty. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 15. We're going to read verses 7 through 11. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work, in all that you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, and to the needy, and to the poor in your land. After reading this, it becomes a lot more apparent what the sin of the rich man is. 
The sin of the rich man was self-worship and neglect of his brother in disobedience to God's command. Look what he does for himself and what he does for others. How, how, how is he described? He's a rich man. He's clothed in purple. Purple was a very precious fabric, or, or dye for a fabric, rather. It was very expensive to, to uh, create the types of dye that gave the color purple. So it was usually reserved for extremely wealthy people. It's a color of royalty in this day and age. So what's he doing? He's making himself out to be a king. He's pimping out his clothes so he looks really fancy. So everybody knows he's got money. What type of clothes do you have? Fine linen. The good stuff. The comfy stuff and who feasted sumptuously every day. It's it's kind of interesting. When you read the Old Testament, some of the commands that exist. One of the commands is that there are times when you fast or uh, avoid eating too much. Uh, Another, which is even more interesting, is there are commands to feast. There are commands to celebrate. You know, it's a mandatory celebration. You know, it'd be like... as if somebody went around 4th of July checking to see whether or not you shot off fireworks or, or, or did a barbecue. And if, if you didn't, you would be considered unpatriotic or, or something like that. You know, there, in the Old Testament, there are these commands to feast. And one of the things that was commanded in the feast is whenever you made your sacrifice, whenever you offered it, whenever you gathered the food, you were to go out and you were to find people who weren't well off. You were to find people who were poor, and you were to bring them to your table so that everyone in the community, whether they were haves or have-nots, could celebrate and worship and feast together. Now, here we have somebody, and he's not just feasting on the feast days. He's feasting every day. He's got a surplus every day. What does this contrast with Lazarus at his gate? So where's the proximity? He's right there. He's right off the property. Where do, what do you got to go through to get to your property every day? You got to go through the gate. What is he seeing every day? Every day the rich man is seeing Lazarus and ignoring his need. Every day he's going home and feasting sumptuously. What does it say about Lazarus? He's poor. He's covered with sores. He desires to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. The rich man's got so much, there's stuff falling off the table. And Lazarus doesn't even get access to it. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, I'm going to let you know my bias a little bit. Everybody has a bias when they come and read the Bible. I am unbiasedly a dog person. So that will interpret that that will affect my interpretation. Some people say, you know, this is this is bad. You know, even even the dogs were disrespecting him. I don't take that view uh, because what does a dog do when it has its uh, has sores on itself? It licks them. Yeah. So if Lazarus has sores. The dogs come and and lick him. The only people who are they're not even people. The only ones who are having <laughs> our dog is people. Now other people's dogs aren't. The only one who is having mercy upon Lazarus, the only one who is caring for him, the only one who is attending to his needs are the dogs. Yet Lazarus, uh, the rich man, is walking by every day 
ignoring his need and supplying himself. By the way, there's a particular sin. As I went into this study of hell, there are some things you kind of suspect as you're going into a study of hell, how it'll be described, what'll be talked about. And then there are other things that kind of surprise you. One of the things that has surprised me in this study of hell is how often treatment of the needy, treatment of the poor, treatment of the least of these is mentioned in connection with either eternal salvation or eternal damnation. It's all throughout Jesus' teaching on the subject. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the passage of Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And, and we talked about how you treat the least of these as a reflection of how much you value the person and the work of Christ. Because if you understand what Christ has done for you, you understand that he has come to meet your needs as one of the least of these. As a sinner damned for all eternity. He has come to save you. And in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Jesus says, you know, how you treat the hungry, how you treat the thirsty, how you treat the stranger, the naked, the sick, The prisoner is a reflection of how you treat and care for Christ. Here we see that this man treats a hungry, thirsty, sick man with disdain and ignores his need. Hell is an earned punishment. Hell is, we've we've said this first point, hell is a place of punishment for rebellion against God. God's work and God's work. Hell is an earned punishment. By the way, the opposite is true of heaven. Heaven is an unearned reward. It is a gift freely given. Now when I say it's unearned, it's unearned on our part. It is earned by Christ and given to us. As we think about these things, I want you to realize that it's not just Lazarus's sin that condemns him, it is our sin that condemns us. When we disregard God, when we disregard God's work, when we disregard God's word, those are damnable offenses. Second point, hell is a place of conscious torment. Hell is a place of conscious torment. There are ways people try and get around this by uh, saying that You know, people will be destroyed or annihilated. But in this passage in particular, we have uh, the rich man is aware of his pain. It says he died and was buried and in Hades being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish. In this flame. He is in torment. He is conscious of what is happening to him. He is aware of his pain and apparently aware of the relief that others are experienced. By the way, the, the, it, hell is a place of conscious torment. The opposite is true of heaven. 
hell is a place, or heaven, don't want to get those mixed up. Heaven is a place of conscious comfort. One of the things this passage also brings out to us as we are thinking about these eternal binary destinies. A question I want you to ask yourself, is earth your heaven? Because in the life of Lazarus, sorry, in the life of the rich man, earth was his heaven. He lived as though this life is what I get and I'm going to enjoy myself. I'm going to pursue my glory, my enjoyment, my comfort in the here and now. He was probably not expecting his eternal destination as well. Remember, this is a rebuke that Jesus is giving to the Israelites, the people of God. Some of the harshest warnings we have are against people who assumed that they would inherit the kingdom of heaven but didn't. Is earth your heaven? One of the sins of the rich man was living as though this life was heaven. We, we, we see that contrasted in the end. Abraham's rebuke, he says, Child, remember, in your life you received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Saints, if, if you have the choice between anguish in this life and the comforts of heaven for eternity, or if you have the choice of the comforts of this life here and now and the torments of hell for all eternity, that should not be a hard choice for us. For some, this earth will be the only heaven they ever experience. For the unbeliever, that's true. For the believer, this is the only hell we will ever experience here on earth. Are you living in light of that eternal reality? Are you willing to take on temporal suffering for eternal purposes? <coughs> hell is a place of punishment for rebellion against God. God's work and God's work. Hell is a place of conscious torment. Third, hell is eternally inescapable. When the rich man asked for Lazarus to come down and dip his finger just in the water to bring him a little bit of relief, to cool him slightly, what's the response? There's a gulf fixed. There's a chasm set. There is no escape route from hell and the torments therein. I believe it's in 1906. There it was a fire in the Iroquois Theater in Chicago. They had had uh, an electrical short in one of the lights near the stage that set some of the tapestries on fire. In the panic to get out, some of the people began pushing against doors. What they didn't realize is that you had to unlock those doors in order to open them. And some of them you had to unlock and then pull. In the panic, the crowds pressed against the door and crushed people to death trying to escape the fire so that the doors couldn't be opened. Over 600 people perished in that fire. By the way, that's one of the reasons why we have exit lights and doors that open outwards 
in large rooms. Those people were pressed against the door trying to escape the fire. Unable to. The fires of hell are inescapable. There's no exit strategy. There's no opening doors. There's nothing to get out of it for all eternity. This brings some urgency to the importance of the proclamation of the gospel. People's eternal destinies are set in this life. Once they're in the next, there's no escape. Those who are in hell cannot escape to heaven and receive relief. Those who are in heaven cannot go to hell to give relief. The chasm is set. The gulf is fixed. The destiny you set in this life remains with you for all eternity. Both heaven and hell are eternally inescapable. For the believer, that brings great comfort and joy. For the unbeliever, it should bring great fear and dread. Fourthly, Hell is a place of continued rebellion against God, his work, and his word. Did you notice that? Even in hell, the rich man is not repenting of the sins that brought him there. What was his sin on earth? It was dismissing and viewing Lazarus as less important than himself, attending to his own needs and ignoring Lazarus. What does he do once he's in hell? Hey, why don't you send Lazarus down here? To help me out. To make me feel better. To attend to my needs. By the way, it's kind of interesting. He asked for Lazarus to go down, not himself to go up. I don't know what to make of that. But it's an interesting aspect of the text. The the sins he was committing on earth, he's continuing in hell. We, We also see that he is accusing and blaming God. You notice that with the interaction about his brothers. What's he say? Hey, you, well, if it's too late for me, send them to my brothers. Guess what he realizes? He realizes they're as damned as he is. They're on the same course as he is. And what does Moses say? Or Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He says, no, they're not hearing them. But do you know what? If you send somebody from the dead, then they'll understand. Then they'll hear. You know, my problem and their problem was really we weren't warned properly. We weren't given enough information. We we, we didn't have everything that we needed to be saved. It's God's fault. It's somebody else's fault for not sending us a messenger from the dead. Hell is a place of continued rebellion against God. Uh, Stacy mentioned in in his message, you know, the grinding, uh, the, the gritting of the teeth. Hell's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, the weeping and sorrow, the gnashing of teeth is continued rebellion. It's continued anger against God. We see this, uh, this phrase, gnashing of teeth, right before Stephen is stoned. The people gnash their teeth at him before picking up the stones to stone him. What is it? It's angry. It's mad. Here we see in this passage as well, there's a blaming of God. It's not my fault. It's his fault. I didn't have what I needed to be saved. Hell is a place of continued rebellion against God, His work, and His word. Notice that in His life, He ignored the prophets. He, he ignored the commands of Moses. He ignored the exhortations of Deuteronomy 
to care for and love the least of these among him. Thomas Boston was a Puritan. He describes this aspect of hell in this way. As in heaven grace continues, sorry, as in heaven grace comes to its perfection, so in hell sin arrives at its highest pitch. And as sin is thus advancing upon the man, he is the nearer and the likelier to hell. Hell is a place of continued rebellion against God. The fifth thing we see in this passage is that God himself, God's work and God's word have been revealed that you and I might escape hell. Notice the interesting phrase here that's ended with, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Hopefully that reminds you of somebody. Christ came and died upon the cross that we might escape the punishment of hell that we have earned. Christ rose from the dead in confirmation of his work before God and proclaimed the truth to men who still did not believe. God's work, God's word, and the person of Jesus Christ have been given that you might be released from sin and hell and damnation. His Holy Spirit has been given to those who believe that we might be continuing in the process of removing sin from ourselves and growing in Christ's likeness until the day when Jesus Christ returns to earth to establish His rule, His reign, and His kingdom on earth. That time He will separate the sheep and the goats. At that time, everyone's eternal destiny will be set. We have a brief time here on earth before eternity, as do those who do not know about the one who is raised from the dead in order to save the lost from an eternity of receiving what they deserve. Christ has died for us that we might live with Him. He has taken our inheritance of hell that we might enjoy His presence in heaven. Heed the warnings that are in Scripture. Rejoice that God has given Himself on your behalf and repent of anything that keeps you from Him. Live as though this earth isn't your final destiny. Live in light of the promises of Jesus Christ. Be thirsty for the next life and not for the present one. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and work. We pray, Lord, that You would bless us and encourage us to obey You, to seek You. Lord, may we heed the warnings of Scripture. 
May we take seriously your word. May we grow in faith, hope, and love to you. Lord, may we never forget what Christ has done for us. May we never stop living in light of that. May we never stop growing in gratitude for that. Lord, may we never forget what he has saved us from and what he has called us to. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.